When I was 15, I remember driving in the car with my dad on a highway. We had the radio turned up, and because I remember the exact highway and how far we were from home, I know it took him 25 minutes or so to choose how he would start the dialogue. He lowered the radio, and something in the pit of my stomach knew that we were headed into a detour. Not on our drive, but in the broader sense of our journey. It seems like things are getting pretty serious between you two, I heard him say, though it was hard to hear over the construction I'd already started, building a proverbial wall between us. I didn't really respond. Then there it was, as blunt as an ice cream scoop. Mom and I are worried you might be having sex. Are you? There was considerable silence. Deafening silence. Until a stroke of unparalleled teenage genius came over me. I continued my stare at the road ahead of us and responded with a question. When did you start having sex? It was a one-move checkmate. Fair enough. I want you to be safe, he said, as he reached down and turned the radio back up. It was a crisis averted, and such has it been maybe forever between young people and the adults in their lives. For those lucky enough to have adults in their lives. This episode is not a takedown of my parents, or any parents for that matter. This is difficult stuff. The research and practice of quality sex education has divides, like so many areas of education. No doubt millions of parents in the U.S. are thinking that sex, not just the act, but anatomy and physiology, identity, expression, context, consent, all of it, are things their kids are getting in school. Yet less than half of states in the U.S. require that it's covered in schools, and when it is, too often it's by someone who's undertrained for the role. So where is it happening? Many of the places it always has, for starters. Youth learn from friends, from stuff an adult leaves intentionally or unintentionally lying around the room, from the culture they see around them, and like it or not, digital environments, the internet, and all of its data. All of it. Are probably teaching your kids, too. In this episode, I'm talking with Julia Bennett, Director of Learning Strategy at Planned Parenthood Federation of America, along with Dan Rice, Director of Training for an organization called ANSWER out of Rutgers University in New Jersey, and Temateo Fagbenle. She's a senior at Queens College and soon to begin fellow at Nancy, a production of WNYC Studios. You may remember her from previous episodes of this show on higher education and youth radio. I usually call her Temi. If you've wondered about this intersection between technology and the sexual development of young learners, I'm with you. We tackle some big issues in this episode, and I hope also shed some light on the reality of where young people are learning sex ed and what role adults in their lives can play. Many thanks to guests from ANSWER and Planned Parenthood Federation of America, and to Temi, who is a beacon of open and honest inquiry and input in a time when it's hard to separate signal from noise. I hope you take as much from the conversation as I did. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Um, Dan, Julia, Temi, thank you so much for joining this conversation. I really feel like uh, one of the amazing gifts of doing a show like this is um, I have not been bashful uh, to tell this audience that this is absolutely um, the person who learns the most from these conversations is me. Um, and uh, my hope is that I'm a conduit to lots of people who are interested in the things that I am as educators, uh, parents, 
just uh, socially conscious, uh, civically minded people who care about supporting young people in their development. Um, so one of the gifts of this conversation is that I feel like I'm, I'm able somehow, uh, you know, the world presents some, some rock stars in a subject matter where I am a total novice. And uh, to help me and and this audience um, through this conversation uh, to learn more. And uh, I really, I don't think I've worked with an educator in my life who hasn't at some point said, you know, um, we need to be thinking more about sex ed. And um, to be honest, I don't even know where my own, uh, not me personally, but uh, I hear people say all the time, like, my kids are learning sex ed, but I'm not sure where. Um, then we hear uh, tons of uh, sort of propagation of the, the fear narrative around uh, digital spaces and what's happening there. Some of it warranted, some of it not. But um, all of this to say that uh, I, am, I have so much learning to do from this conversation. I'm grateful for your time coming to it. Um, and, you know, where I really want to start is to talk, let's deconstruct a little bit um, from the beginning of, certainly the beginning of technologies. Uh, Temi uh, and I have had this conversation before in other episodes of this show where um, since, you know, the Bible, the printing press, uh, books were a technology that people feared um, certainly young people spending too much time on and it, it detracting from um, other things they should be doing. And I want to ask uh, you two, Dan and Julia, uh, extremely experienced sex educators and people who know about the lives of young people, um, to what extent do you think that um, there are uh, things that we're missing about uh, digital environments that are really critical tools for sex ed and how young people develop um, a sexual identity and their ideas about um, themselves in that context and to what extent are the fears warranted and do we need to really be paying attention? Julia, let's start with you. Sure. Um, so I think there's a you're right that there's a lot of uh, fear around what young people are doing with the internet. I think uh, particularly when it comes to sex and sexuality, a lot of adults are really fearful of what teens may or may not be doing or learning or experiencing. Um, and I think the truth is that overwhelmingly, there's n the, this is blown out of proportion. By and large, young people are having, they're having sex for the first time at about the same age over decades and decades. It's generally at around age 17. That's the average in the US and it's the average in the industrialized world. And that really hasn't changed um, as long as that data has been recorded. Um, so there's lots of fears about, you know, young people are having sex earlier and they're doing crazy things and all this stuff. And that's just not the reality. Um, so by and large, young people are, are just as safe and healthy as they have been for generations. 
citizens. Um, I think what technology has done is given a lot more access to information, um, information that might be good, might be accurate and wonderful, and also might be inaccurate or, um, you know, stigmatizing or not necessarily what young people um, can understand or process at their given age. So the internet has done a lot um, and for access to information, but that's a, that's a neutral idea, right? So like with all technology, it's not good or bad, it is what it is. Um, what young people can do with it could be good, could be bad. Um, so there is certainly some things to be concerned about when it comes to young people experiencing sex and sexuality online in particular, but by and large, it's just, it's just a medium, right? So young people, um, it can be really wonderful to help young people in their learning, and it can also potentially be problematic depending on how they're using it. Yeah, I definitely agree with all of that. Um, I think that it's all in how we look at how young people are using technology. We can see the pluses, we can see the, the cons, right? And so when I think about how technology has been used to bring people together in community, that's really great. And when I think about uh, particularly young LGBT youth who are maybe in the middle of the country and feel like they are the only gay or lesbian teen in their town, and they're able to access information and talk to other young people who identify as gay or lesbian, and I think that that is one of the major pluses to the resource of having technology available to them. I also think about sexting, you know, where we typically talk about the fear of sexting and, and how negative that is. And I think that there's certainly the... Um, the fear and we want to make sure that young people are safe when they're doing information, sharing information in that way and be aware of what the the possible consequences are of that. But we also need to step back and think about the fact that when they're sexting, they're engaging in a behavior that's not going to put them at risk for pregnancy. They're engaging in a behavior that's not going to put them at risk for STDs. And so there's really two sides to every coin, I think. Mm -hmm. Tammy. Curious to hear from you as as somebody who is um, your your senior this year uh, at Queens College. People, I hope this audience knows you from a couple of other episodes that we've done together. But you are um, part of the reason I love to have you in the room is is uh, uh, to have your uh, pretty objective and, and even keeled take on what the experience has been for you. You you've of the the I'm not gonna. Uh, I don't want to presume people's ages, but I'm going to guess you were uh, went through things like high school sex ed most recently for uh, among the four of us. My question for you is: is what was that experience like? Um, but most importantly, I think for for you as a college aged young woman, um, like where has the most important learning? happened for you um, and contrast that with what's been offered by the institutions around you? Well, I think my experience has been pretty unique um, because I went to a high school that actually had a clinic inside of it. Um, and so because of that, I mean, I had access to birth control from age 14. It was confidential um, and it was free. Right. And I don't think that's everybody's experience. Mm -hmm. And I also went to a very super liberal school where teachers would answer questions about sex ed and it was LGBTQ friendly. Um, but what I found when I spoke to my friends who went to like the 
typical high school is just a lot of misinformation that was just like I, it just spread like it spreads like wildfire now right someone posts something on facebook like hey like i took uh birth control and i grew a second head and suddenly it's <laughs> it's shared 500 times and within the hour right and that's um oftentimes and this is what my story was about like in the same vein people would sexed right and then suddenly this picture was everywhere so um till this day I, I have a moral objection to not a moral but like I have a personal objection to sexing um when it like when someone asks me to sex because I still think I'm in that age range where people are like yeah send nudes like I have I, I automatically like put up like a shield but what I've seen now especially with um the younger younger um group like these 17 year olds is they're getting they're getting more savvy i think about their privacy um and they'll have oftentimes they'll have like two instagrams right mm -hmm. they'll have a public instagram and they'll have what's called a finsta i feel like i'm so I'm sorry if I'm blowing up anyone's spot for the parents that are listening. <laughs> <laughs> and so on those Instagrams, they'll have, like, their, their close friends and they'll share, like, maybe, like, the nudes or whatever, or whatever, these sexual sort of posts. Um, and so, like, it's it's changing now. Like, people are much more aware of, like, this fact that, like, oh, if I send this thing, like, I no longer own it. Like, once I send this picture, mm -hmm. once I post this picture, I no longer own it. And it it'll be shared so I think it's interesting um, and I think people tend to think that th these young people don't understand what technology is doing to them but I think there really is an understanding of like sexual things right or, or privacy and sexuality mm. amongst young people I'm sorry was that an answer to the question you asked yeah it was um, and it gives me so many more questions. Um, Julian, Dan, what what in in your so I think the temptation for a lot of people listening is going to be um, you know sexting you know at at that age. I think a lot of people are going to be surprised by it, believe it or not. Um, but also there's this reflex about like about. Uh, sharing in that way that I think many of us, uh, you know, grow up with a stigma around that. Um, my question to you guys is like, what are we, what are we missing when, when we make, um, those kind of assumptions that like, uh, you know, that oversharing is just categorically bad, that, uh, these lines of communication that young people are opening are detrimental, um, or are all those assumptions just right? Well, I'd say, I mean, I think, Tammy, to your point about, you know, young people today are, are getting better at um, using technology, I think that's really spot on. Um, at least, you know, anecdotally, I've seen, uh, I think that young people, because they grew up with these technologies, they're so used to them, right? If you grow up with something constantly being around you and constantly evolving around you, you, you learn how to use it. And mm -hmm. so I think actually older generations struggle a lot more with how to use different um, platforms on technology because they didn't grow up with it. So I think you're right that a lot of young people are much more savvy at these technologies mm -hmm. than their parents or than educators and older generations are. Um, but I think the thing that's missing a lot is uh, 
and I, this sort of goes back to what I talked to earlier, is that it's less about the thing that they're doing and more about how, particularly as an educator, how can we help them? Mm-hmm. How can we help young people navigate this? Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, the, the thing we're missing is really thinking about how how we can use technology um, and use sex education to help young people navigate relationships, navigate relationships that are happening via technology or in real life, um, whether it's uh, sexual or not, um, because sex ed really does sort of take that broad view of not just the person you're about to have sex with, but what sexuality and relationships means in your life. So, you know, at Planned Parenthood, we've done a lot of work to create, to use technology to create tools to help young people navigate relationships and sex. Um, So one example of that is the consent video series that we did uh, a few years ago, Mm -hmm. um, where we really show young people having conversations and really model what it looks like to ask someone for consent, to interpret a response that you don't really know what they meant by that. Um, And one of the scenes in it, we do have a, a texting interaction back and forth to show what that might look like if someone's asking you for um, for a photo of yourself and how you can navigate that if you're not comfortable with that. So to me, the, the issue is really about how do we support young people in dealing with the world that they live in instead mm-hmm. of saying this phenomenon is good or bad and instead just helping them navigate it and stay healthy and safe. Yeah. Mm. I think it's incredible that those conversations are happening with 14-year-olds. Like the conversation of consent, it's... It's insane that they that they know this like sort of broad like I meet forty year olds who don't know what consent mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. and then I'll meet like a Gen Z millennial who's like, Yeah, this is consent and they understand that gender is a spectrum, like they under like and I feel like even for when it comes to social media um, and sex ed for a lot of people who grow up in super conservative communities, it also like teaches them that their sexuality isn't bad, right? And I think that's one of the most important things to come out of it is just teaching people that it's not bad to be sexual. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, but there's a there's a divide, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this comes back to uh, like I don't think we talk about. There are a lot of folks talking about um, in in my world, um, the phrase digital divide gets used very frequently. But there are divides all over education. Um, and case in point, I, I talked to uh, a couple of teens over the course of this week I was texting with. These are, are uh, you know, people who are close to me who I know I can reach out and say, like, hey, what was sex ed like? Uh, sophomores and juniors and seniors in high school. Um, one's experience was uh, STDs are bad, drugs are bad, stay away from it. And that was, in in their words, literally, that was my experience of sex ed. And then I went online to learn the rest. Uh, the other who um, admittedly on, on his part, super enlightened young guy, was like, look, I went to a private school with lots of resources, and um, they were pretty hooked up as far as sex ed goes. Like, we had dildos in the class, and we were putting condoms on them, and we talked about um, we talked about all the different types of contraception, and at a very, you know, like, we started uh, freshman and sophomore year. It was like a totally different conversation. So it brings up this other divide, right? Like you're talking about what is what the potential is through sex ed, um, but then there's this huge gap. And one of the interests I have is is like, 
you know, how can we be more savvy about and uh, from the tool you described that Planned Parenthood um, has been working on and folks like Answer have been working on, um, how do we get more savvy about using some of these sort of uh, huge broadcast platforms and the power of the internet to make sure that um, we're getting serious about the divide, you know, and, and kids who are still uh, leaving 12th grade with a very limited view on um, these things, to your point about, um, you know, understanding the spectrum and, and all of the great things you just pointed out. Well, it almost sounds to me like... Um there's also like a socioeconomic divide when it comes to sex ed and my my high school is in the Upper East Side which may be the reason why I had this clinic in my school yeah. and they had the funding to be able to keep it open and then there are people who go to school just 20 blocks down and their experience is very different right so I think it's 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 not a question of the internet I think the internet is like it's this tool that is there but if you're like you have to have the people in front of you who are encouraging you to think about sex as something that isn't bad like i don't i don't know how to quite put this into mm -hmm. words you have to have the 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 real person there to to have you even think about this to like search it up i don't know mm. does that make sense it, um, it does make sense. I actually have a, um, and and uh, I'm I'm excited that people have thoughts. So um, I'm gonna you say what you were gonna say. I'm gonna look for my quote okay. to your point. I mean, I, I, you put this brought up a couple of things for me. I think when you know, sort of to pull this back a little bit, right? We're in a context in this country where only 24 states and DC require any for, require sex ed in their state. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a huge number of states that don't require it at all. And then even for the ones that do require it, what they require it includes can like run the gamut of like really amazing to actually really problematic um, or nothing at all. And then you bring it down to the actual county and district and school level and what that looks like in real life and how it actually shows up in a classroom can have huge variation within the same state, within the same county or district. Um, so there's this crazy patchwork of what sex ed actually looks like, right? So in New York City, that might look like 20 blocks away. What you get is totally different. Um, on a country level, that often looks like what you're getting in an urban setting versus a rural setting mm -hmm. looks really different. We're seeing huge disparities that are really growing that rural young people are getting less and less sex ed over the last 10 years. Um, so there's some real disparities there for sure. And I think the other point that you were bringing up that's great is about, um, so what you can do with technology is great and getting information out there is great, but it doesn't replace in-person sex education, right? So there's something that you get from in-person sex education um, and being able to be in a room with people and have different ideas and really talk about the nuance. There's a lot that can happen in person that you just can't capture online. But what you can do online is create supplementary um, information and, um, and tools and videos and all kinds of resources that can either, young people can actually directly consume online or educators can then use in the classroom. Mm. Um, and I know Amaze has done this as well. We do plan, Planned Parenthood does this as well with our videos and a lot of our tools is we create lesson plans that go along with the, the digital resource so that um, educators can actually use them in the classroom um, and integrate them into lesson planning as well. Yeah. So um, the quote I was looking for is uh, from Dana Boyd 
who um, Dana Boyd in, in is a hero in uh, as a sort of uh, academic and, and theorist uh, and, and doer of amazing things. Um, a hero in a few different spaces, but but certainly in the world of kind of um, technology as it intersects with education. And, and she wrote a book called um, It's Complicated, The Social Lives of Network Teens. So she writes, um, in a world where information is easily available, strong personal networks and access to helpful people often matter more than the access to the information itself. Um, and I think that's kind of the point um, that you guys are making. Yeah, I think it's it's really a ma- human it's human uh nature to trust uh the people around you who are older even if they're giving you wrong information right so if you're in the super conservative community i don't know and everyone is saying like birth control is bad like i've i've heard people say like birth control will like give you cancer right mm. and this is like a 25 year old who lives in New York City who like parties in the Lower East Side and like this is what they're this is what they're saying to me and they believe this right even though it's not correct and there is science that proves it's not correct so imagine for the 16 year old kid in Utah you know like in rural Utah where it's I don't know more Christian or more um, conservative um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's important to have people around you who encourage curiosity and who encourage um, looking for the facts of things. Yeah, to your point and to Julia's point earlier, in many of the states that do require sex ed, it's not even required that it be medically accurate, right? And so that's a problem mm. right there in and of itself. I think the the divide that we were talking about earlier can also be uh, that parents don't talk about sex ed because they think the schools are talking about it, and schools don't talk about sex ed because they think the parents are supposed to be talking about it, and you have the student left in the middle who's just not getting the information. Yeah, who goes online. Exactly. And so that's why it's so important that the resources that are available to young people online are accurate, medically accurate, and um, are forthcoming, but also to your point that there are skills, just like there are in any other academic area that we would teach that young people need, that they're not going to learn online. They may be able to get that content knowledge and mm. learn about things, but their skills, like how do we negotiate consent with a partner? How do we have conversations about testing and our status and all of those different pieces that need to happen in person? Can you give me an example of a, a lesson in sex ed that might not be, uh, what did you say, medically accurate? Is that the phrase that you used? I, I did, yeah. So I think... There's a lot of places where scare tactics are the primary way that sex education is approached. And so they'll take a very fear-based approach and say, you know, if you have sex, you're going to get an STD or you're going to get pregnant Mm. and and use that fear to try and discourage young people from uh, engaging in sexual behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we know is that those fear tactics do not resonate and they do not stay with students for a long time. And we firmly believe that answer that providing young people with medically accurate information better arms them with the ability to make informed decisions for themselves. And we believe that when young people have the information, they make the right choice for what's right for them. Mm. Is there, is there, um, I'm trying to think, like, what what were it's you know, 
uh, it's been so long since I, since I had those questions. But I'm I'm trying to think. Um, you know what what are the uh, what is on people young people's minds at that stage? And there's just so you know so much going on there that it seems so irresponsible to me that uh, we continue to be consumed by um, a sort of inaccurate culture for how we support that development. Um, I want to I want to just um, talk about a little bit of data. So in in New York, there was this report that you guys are probably familiar with that um, I was not. But um, the uh, let me get to it. So 2017, there was a uh, the Comptroller's report for sex ed. You guys know I'm getting a little bit of head nod uh, for New York City schools. Um, so this report was, was it seems like a big deal. Um, and so here were some of the findings. 88% of schools that teach middle and high school students do not have a teacher who's licensed for health education, uh, with the majority of those schools being middle schools. Uh, only 57% of eighth grade students completed the state mandated requirement of one semester of health taught during the middle school years. Um, considering topics like differentiation, um, that seems like a problem to me, that we're, we would be offering it at a minimum of uh, um, such a small minimum, a semester. Um, only 7.6% of health instructors participated in any professional development related to sexual health and education within the last two years. 116 middle and high schools, 12% have no teacher at all design, uh, assigned sorry, to teach health, including 100 middle schools, including K-8 and 6-8 schools. Of all 6-8 middle schools, 28% do not have a teacher assigned to teach health. Is this surprising to you guys? Unfortunately, it's not surprising at all. Is this a New York phenomenon, or is it what you see nationally? No, this is definitely a national phenomenon that, um, you know, who is teaching sex education, what we require uh, sex education or health education teachers to have, um, what the curriculum looks like. It varies so much depending on where you live. So what you're learning depends so much on where you live. Um, so there are huge disparities across the country, for sure. It's not just New York. Are there? Um, I kind of know the answer to this question. So I, I dug around a little bit. It seems like there are, there is a national standard uh, for sex education, and it's actually part of how I came to your organization, um, Dan. Um, that you guys were involved in some of the work to create um, uh, a national standard. Is it being used? And and um, you know, what role do standards play in helping bring schools along? Sure. So we did create the national sexuality education standards that are being used in many states across the country. Uh, there is no mandate to use them. They're not required federally. They're not required in any state as far as I know. So to, to Julia's point earlier, it re it's not even just about where you live. It sometimes f comes down to the level of what classroom you're in. Like, there may be one teacher that's doing a really great job teaching sex ed, and in the classroom in that same school right next door, there's another teacher that drew drew the short straw, essentially, and does not have any kind of training or any kind of certification to teach sex education, mm -hmm. but has been thrown into the classroom and said, here, you got to do it. Figure it out. And so... 
a lot of places do not have standards. I think about, uh, I grew up in the New York City, in, in the, not New York City, but New York schools, and I think about what my sex ed was, and it, it's very clear to me. I remember in sixth grade, we sat in an auditorium, all the boys, right, sat in one auditorium, and they watched this video, and we had the only male sixth grade teacher in the room with us, and he said, I'm not here to tell you how to do it, but if you have any questions, I'll answer them. That was my sex ed. And then in seventh grade, we got the scary diseased genital slides, mm -hmm. which, are, you know, are a whole other problematic piece It sounded piece like in you said itself. degenitals, which would be a funny... <laughs> diseased a genitals. Funny, that should be a word. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it really doesn't surprise me to hear that, you know, there's so much, there's such a wide range of what's happening in the classrooms and across the country for folks. Mm. I was actually just speaking to a 16-year-old um, who is who knew about prep, which I thought was incredible. Like his, say more. Yeah, so prep is um, uh, the like so it's a once a day medication that you can take that reduces the chance of getting HIV by 99 percent. And he had he told me that he had learned about prep from. You know how Instagram, like, they tailor uh, ads to you mm -hmm. from, like, the tailored Instagram ads. Yes. So I think that's an interesting thing as well. And that's where he learned about it. Yeah, so he just clicked on this ad uh, for prep and was just like, what the hell? I didn't know, like, this, like, why isn't, like, why isn't everyone doing this? And, I mean, I also didn't know how to answer that. I'm yeah. just, I'm not sure why it isn't as popular. Yeah. Um, but lately I've been seeing television ads for prep. So I think there's also like this, there's like a national, uh, well not national, but like I do think um, there is less censoring of uh, sexual education happening now. And it might just be because um, television is more raunchy like the internet is more raunchy like there's less restrictions on things but this is resulting in a lot of information um, for young people to sort through so he clicked on that ad but there are hundreds and thousands of others who would just like skip right mm -hmm. by it right so I think there's also this issue of like teaching young people like what like what i mean there's just so much <laughs> there's so much information yeah like. so so that's it's really interesting that you say that because um what you just described is is an example of programmatic advertising mm. right like that's and when people think like there are two i think versions of how people think about the sort of evil web right there's like the dark web and hackers and uh, well, then there's good hackers and bad hackers, but, um, you know, it's like um, the alt-right and stuff that's happening, that's like one version of the evil, evil web, and then folks who are sort of um, uh, open uh, web advocates think of uh, advertisers and commercial interests as being evil about in the web. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's interesting that you mention that because that's programmatic advertising and it's mm -hmm. a company who's like basically tailoring some anonymized demographic data just based on what what else he's doing on social media um, to serve up something that in that case seems really important, mm -hmm. you know, and, and useful. And it's not a question, but it's kind of a realization for me that um, 
it just kind of brings me back to there are so many technologies out there that are being used for commercial purposes um, that we could be using much more wisely for education purposes and for purposes that are going to really influence a young person's life um, that we're not yet. I wondered if, do you know if, if Planned Parenthood or if Answer, if, if um, other organizations nationally have been thinking about how to sort of place programmatic advertising. We talked about um, uh, LGBTQ youth. Uh, we talked about um, young people in rural environments that, uh, you know, is there talk about how to leverage some of these technologies for good? One of the things that Planned Parenthood really thinks about in this space is how do we cater the information to the person, right? So how do you uh, how do you help people get this more like one-on-one -on -one experience or something that's really personalized to them and their questions and what they want to know about? Um, so one way that we've done that is through our chat text hotline um, on our website uh, and on a few other websites that you uh, can actually talk to a live health educator. This is a free service. It's available nationally seven days a week where young people can go in and ask their questions from a real live health educator, get real-time responses um, so that, you know, even if that information is also available on our website, then at least they're getting something that's really specific to them. Every person, not just young people, I think every person thinks that whatever, you know, whether it's I had sex and this, that, and the other thing happened, um, like, am I pregnant question, which is the most common question we get on this, right? Um, it doesn't matter how many times we answer it online, everyone thinks their circumstance is special. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. Um, but that's irrelevant because really people just want a personalized response. They want to know that they're getting a response to their experience, their question, their lives. Um, so chat text is one way that we're doing that. Um, and we're also now starting to look into different AI technologies and uh, working on developing a chatbot so that um, that could be available 24-7 for young people to ask the kinds of questions where maybe they don't don't feel comfortable talking to a real life person. They'd rather talk to a bot, mm. um, and then it can be available more hours and can answer some of the more like stigmatizing um, questions that young people are more scared to talk to with a live person. Can do you do you have data on? I think that that's amazing, and um, I wonder, do you have data on who who's using um, those services? The reason I ask is because is, is there a um, I wonder if there are uh, differences for either young people who can't afford a mobile device, for one, or whether actually um, young people who uh, m might be coming from a lower income household, um, it's, it's not true that low income households don't have mobile devices across the board. Um, so you know, there's some, some mythology there, but I wonder if you guys are, are sussing any of that out about who's, um, who's using it and, and whether um, young people in different cultural circumstances, you know, like coming from um, uh, maybe their first generation or uh, like, like who benefits the most, I guess, is my question. And are there things we need to do to make sure that nobody's left behind when we make some of these advances with the technology for supporting young people? Yeah, that's a great question. So in terms of who we're seeing on chat text, it's um, overwhelmingly young people. And you know, this the program was designed intentionally to center young people, um, particularly young people of color. Um, and so the who we're seeing on chat is overwhelmingly majority, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but overwhelmingly 15 to 24 year olds. Mm. And I believe it's about half um, young people of color, somewhere in that range. So yeah. we're seeing a 
a, a large number of um, from communities of color. I don't know what the geographical breakdown is off the top of my head, but um, we we do. I think the thing to think about with digital um, is. Uh, uh, is to really think about marketing, right? So this goes back to your point about, um, you know, the programmatic marketing that um, a lot, I've talked to a lot of folks who work in this space who create digital tools, um, create things for young people, and then it just sits there and no one sees it. Right. So you really have to think about when you're creating these digital tools, how do you get it in front of the people who actually need it? Um, and, you know, from a programmatic perspective, really that's about um, investing in, in getting it in front of those young people because yeah. they will not come unless they know about it. Yeah. Um, so, How do you do that? Um, so you do, you do marketing, right? You market the tool in the places where those young people are. So we do a lot of marketing across, largely on social media. Um, so we leverage things like Instagram and Facebook to get it in front of the, the young people that need it most. Um, so it, it is sort of just a, a matter of like, putting some money behind some digital marketing because if you make the thing, you invest all this resource in making the thing and no one sees it, why did you make it? So you really have to include that when you're planning a program like this to to make sure it gets in front of the young people who need it. Yeah. It's one thing, and uh, when you are a big enough organization to afford the marketing, I wonder for for you, Dan, for um, some of the media work that you guys have done, um, whether it's harder to get it in front of eyeballs, like is it harder to raise money to do the marketing and do some of the sort of traditional media push work, or is that just all part of um, how organizations like yours, uh, it, it's part of how you propose the work? So I know we definitely don't have a budget uh, like Planned Parenthood <laughs> yeah. uh, to do marketing. We do do a little bit of targeted marketing. A lot of our technology work has really, so sexetcetera or sexytc.org started in 1999, so we really very early on realized that online was where young people were going to be, and since then we've had over 56 million visitors to that website, and so a lot of our priority was on search engine optimization to really make sure that when young people were Googling sex ed and things like that, that we were one of the first resources that were coming up in Google search. how I found you. Is it? (laughs) Great. Awesome. So it's working. Um, We do some work now uh, on... on, social media, just like Planned Parenthood does. Mm -hmm. And we used to do forums and and chats on our website. And when Planned Parenthood started doing their their chat text, we were like, this is great. And we kind of stepped aside and started promoting their resource. So certainly within our organizations that are working nationally, we're communicating with each other, we're promoting each other's resources. And I think the biggest ask, I guess, for teachers is please help us, please get the word out to Mm -hmm. Julia's point. You know, like if young people don't know that these resources exist, then they're not gonna go out looking for them. Yeah. Do you guys, um, what is, if you could wave a wand and um, uh, do something nationally for teachers that would really change the game for how sex education is delivered in the context of whether it's school or after school, um, what would be your, your, if you had one wish to really move your field forward, what would that look like? For me, I'm going to say it would be time and money for professional development. I think so many educators need the professional development. They get thrown in the classroom to teach sex ed without any kind of training to do so. And, 
even though you know sex ed is skill based and, and knowledge based and should have all of those things, there's, it's also a really nuanced topic. We're talking about values. We're talking about a lot of different um, beliefs around how we approach sex ed, and so that's something that a teacher needs preparation around. They oh, need yeah. professional development to learn those pieces. So for me, that would be time and money for professional development. Um, assuming you know Dan's wish comes true, cause yeah. then I'll, I'll <laughs> say something on, else. Right. I'll add on to that. Um, mine would be like just removing the stigma around sex and sexuality, because mm. um, I think that's the that is one of the roots of why we have so many issues. That's why we don't support professional development as much in this field. Um, that's why a lot of parents are um, scared about how they talk to their kids about these issues. That's why a lot of young people don't want to ask adults in their life about it. There's so much stigma mm. around sex and sexuality and how we talk about it in this country. Um, so I think if that was gone, mm -hmm. it would open up the floodgates for people to have honest conversations, for people to, to really own who they are, their identities, and, and the kinds of relationships they want to have. Um, and, you know, I, I just think that would open up everything for everyone if we could just talk openly mm. about sex and sexuality. Mm. I think those are pretty awesome. Um, so I want to I want to shift gears a tiny bit and talk a little bit about um, where we are, like where where contemporary sex ed is happening, whether we like it or not. Um, Temi, you and I were talking about uh, Reddit last night, and um, one of my uh, I won't say which one because I have several. I have many nephews. One of them texted me last night and said, "Oh, check out this uh, a space on Snapchat." And it's, you know, somebody he follows, you know, some, some group that he follows. And, um, like, the first thing up was the ABCs of fetishes. <laughs> and, you know, he's, like, just scrolling through it. And, and his point was that I think I – his point was I think I've learned more from Snapchat uh, about sex ed than I have from school. Or um, he's got a very supportive home life, so he learns a lot from his folks. But um, but I think his point was interesting, and I then spent a lot of time uh, – on Snapchat, like, hmm, what, you know, what exactly is here? So, yeah, Temi... Yeah. Um, it's funny that your nephew said that the first thing he saw on Snapchat was the ABCs of... Oh, no, that was the first thing I... So, he, oh, he so told he, me to follow this this, this group. group that I don't want to publicize just because I don't know what else they do, but... Right. Um, and he said, these guys I follow, and uh, uh -huh. they do periodic, like... Uh, public service announcements that are basically sex ed, and I think I learned more from those than I have in any classes. Yeah, but give me some other examples off the top um, of your head. Definitely Instagram. Like I said, the the Finsta is an incredible um, learning device. So there are a lot of Finstas that people will run that are like public finstas that disguise their identities, it doesn't really matter. But people will post um, sort of informational sex, like they'll just talk about their experience doing this thing and I think mm. for a lot of young people that's what they need. Instagram is although it's I mean you are, it, it is a screen it seems more personal I guess to my age group hmm. so if this person you've been following for two years on their finsta is like I went to Planned Parenthood and I did this it just it destigmatizes it for you hmm. um, Reddit um, is also a really good one I, I follow LGBTQ teens and on that subreddit like a lot of young people just come out and ask 
these questions that then get mm. answered, right? Um, but by and large, I think it, Twitter is probably <laughs> the biggest informational um, tool just really? because... Uh, just because Twitter goes viral all of the time. Most of the viral content you see on the internet is from Twitter. Um, like, all of these screen caps of things that later end up on Instagram is from Twitter. Hmm. And it's just so easy to retweet things. Um, Twitter is... Like, I don't know, I'll, I'll see, like, viral tweets of, like, people posting, like, okay, this is, like, the types of birth control, like like explaining to to young women that um that like I, I don't know like i don't know just like destigmatizing like being a sexual person right yeah. or like this idea of being a slut um and so twitter i think is incredible there's also snapchat but i'm i'm not so much a fan of snapchat yeah. um snapchat is sort of like unregulated i think anyone can sort of create a channel on snapchat and then anyone can follow it um which is part of the reason why their stocks tend to plummet is because people say like oh my god the abc's of fetishes mm-hmm. on snapchat my 14 year old is on this and, yeah you know that creates a huge thing and just for people who are curious about uh maybe they don't use instagram parents or, or educators in what ways is instagram do you find it to be more private than snapchat no snapchat is more private but you can create a finsta uh on instagram well snapchat is it depends right but there is no such thing as like a fake Snapchat. Mm-hmm. Like maybe someone will have a second Snapchat, but that doesn't tend to happen. But on Instagram, people have their public Instagram with like pictures of grandma at Christmas and family mm-hmm. pictures, and then they'll have like a private Instagram with thirty followers who are just their friends yeah. and like post like private things. Mm-hmm. But this is a relatively new concept. This idea of the Finsta. It's yeah. like people are learning that like they have to like perform on social media and like be this person um and so they're like oh like they're like breaking their personality is splitting into like another profile mm-hmm. um i also have a fence though which is full of amazing content mm-hmm. just like memes um but I think for for young people who are just like searching through explore the explore page and like they stop on this post of someone like I don't know like detailing the sexual experience that for a 15 year old who's never had any sexual experience is a wealth of information right mm-hmm. um, and you can you can have a private fence though or a public <sighs> I, I'm not going to go into like the yeah, good, the good complexities detail. of the Finsta. Yeah, but yeah. Is it is it a good thing? Do you guys think um, Julian Dan when and and Temi like when um, when I was a kid, it was like you know your your parents. You find out later if if you uh, grew up in a house like mine that your parents deliberately planted some awful cartoon book like on the bottom shelf of the den. And if you found it, then suddenly it was like, oh my god! You know, I have so I have all these things to learn from from this awful cartoon book. What um, does that mean? So uh, there were there were um, in the seventies and eighties, definitely there were there were these books that were just popular that were like um, kind of your you know getting to know 
yourself and um, how sex worked and all of these things. But it was always like it was never real humans on a page. It was like cartoons and um, typically, you know, uh, people would just like slip it into the den on a shelf someplace. And that was that was how. Yeah. And in my house, we learned uh, an awful lot. So so. Um, my point is that uh, there's a lot of folks in um, in my generation and older who would recognize that phenomenon as their sex ed. Now we have this huge wealth of information, um, and it it brings back the conversation of sort of like what is the role of the educator? What's ro- the role of the adult um, in helping to mediate that experience? Right? Because you could open up. Uh, a web browser and be on 10 different versions of the book that I just described in much more graphic terms. Um, and so I wonder how, like when, when it's happening well, how do you programmatically sort of balance um, lessons and curriculum such that uh, exploration is happening on, you know, for young people on their own, but um, there is uh, an adult role or a, a mentored role uh, that's helping them, you know, uh, guide them through that kind of stuff. Like, what is what does it look like to explore some of the topics beyond um, the easy ones, birth control, and like when we start to get into um, uh, our sexual identity and sort of and and some of the meatier, more difficult topics. How does great education in that space look? Well, I think, so one piece of this is looking at what, you know, what educators can do in a classroom and then also the role that parents can have, right? Yeah. So the leaving a book on a shelf, um, well, it might be helpful in some instances or another, mm-hmm. is not the full picture of what we would hope parents are doing with their young people. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I talked earlier about the stigma that we have in this country around sex. And, um, you know, I think a lot of parents, you know, they want their kids to be healthy. They want their kids to have healthy relationships and fulfilling lives, including, um, you know, healthy sexuality once they're older. Um, but they don't, you know, they worry about how to talk about it. They worry it might not do anything, right? I think a lot of parents think that their kids just won't listen to them. Their teens just don't want to hear from them. Yeah. And that's not true. We actually have lots of research supporting that. Um, teens listen to their parents. Um, there's been research showing that you know the number one source that teens want uh, that are influencing teens' decision making around sex are their parents. Mm-hmm. So they might roll their eyes and then walk out of the room, but they're listening. Mm-hmm. Um, so parents can really have a big impact um, on their kids' ability um, to you know have healthy relationships and uh, and be healthy and safe when it comes to sex and um, but they just there's there's some support that they need I think on how to have these conversations yeah. um, how do you explain where babies come from how do you how do you talk about porn um, how do you talk about things they might see on the internet and mm-hmm. and how that shows up so one of the things that Planned Parenthood does is we have an entire section of our website, actually, that's just for parents. Um, and it breaks down every single topic across every single age group of how you can talk about each of these topics at these different ages. Um, and we're actually going to be coming out with some videos for parents this fall um, as well that address some of these mm-hmm. these topics um, and help parents navigate how they can have more robust conversations with their their children and with the young people in their lives um, at every stage of the way, right? Because what what it means to talk about where babies come from 
to a five-year-old looks really different than what it means to talk about where babies come from in pregnancy and birth control with a 16-year-old. It yeah. looks really different. So making sure that it's age-appropriate, um, developmentally appropriate, is an important part of that, too. Yeah, Yeah. so sort of combining uh, the last two pieces, thinking about where young people are, um, YouTube is where we went to to bring the amaze.org videos to young people that are t- typically... Um, that are focused toward 10 to 14 year olds. Yeah. And so we just launched that initiative two years ago, I think this month, and we've had over 13 million views in two years. That's incredible. an audience targeted at 10 to 14. So we know young people are getting that. We knew that if we created a site that had information for adults and young people, the young people were gonna steer clear of it. They yeah. didn't want nothing to do with it, right? So we put all the videos on YouTube, knowing that's where young people are. And then we created a website, amaze.org, for educators and parents. And so what lives there is questions that you can ask, conversation starters, information on all these different topics for parents. We recently launched uh, a series of five videos, cartoons um, for parents as well, to have those conversations with young people, uh, exactly to, to Julia's point about, you know, how do you talk about where does baby come from? How do we talk about um, body parts and the language that we use for body parts. Ideally, we would love for parents to, you know, normalize these conversations from the time a child is very young and mm-hmm. teach child, teach children the proper names for their body parts. And then those conversations continue as they get older and young people will continue to, you know, be open if you normalize it. And to your point also, we know that from the research, there is some misconception out there that if we talk about it, kids are going to go out there and have sex. And we know that that's not true either based Mm. on the research, right? So giving the young people information does not mean that they're going to go out and have sex. In many cases, it actually turns out to to work the other way. And Mm -hmm. that once people have that information, they're informed and they make the decision that's best for them. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought up YouTube because I think um, that's, it's often missed as a social media platform, right? When we think social media, we think Instagram, Twitter, Mm -hmm. But technically, YouTube is also a social sure. media, but it is sort of a weird crossover space because it's also a search engine. It's actually the second most popular search engine after Google. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does have this sort of dual functionality that gives it a lot of power on the internet to really to reach people in a different kind of way on a bigger level. Because on something like Instagram, um, you know, like Planned Parenthood, like a lot of organizations have inst- have Instagram handles. Yeah. But the only people who are going to see it are the people who are already following you. Yep. And while that's great, and a lot of people do follow Planned Parenthood to get information, and that's wonderful, there are a lot of folks who just are never going to see that. Yeah. But YouTube, because it's a search engine, and because it's a search engine people use to find information, um, if you can capture people there, there's a lot of power in that. Yeah. I have more questions than we have time for, but I do. I don't want to end our conversation before we just. I want to shift a tiny bit to the hot button issue of consent and talking a little bit about. Um, here's the question I really want to ask while I have experts in the room is: is when we think about the culture or or um, there, there's there's a culture that we haven't done enough to cultivate around how consent happens and in, in my opinion and um, I think a lot of educators I wonder sometimes whether the digital lives of young people does more to at a you know is more of a detriment to building that culture or whether it's um, more of an asset and I wonder how all three of you feel about that um, Tammy starting in, in your experience what do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, I do think that um, the social media is creating like a lot of extremes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when you don't have anyone to speak to, like I, like I remember, like I had a computer in my room since the age of like six. Right. And so, like, my parents weren't talking to me about these things. These things. And by, like, the age of 12, I think I had, like, a Facebook or a MySpace or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and, like, I knew what BDSM was. Right. And I remember, like, talking to my friends about it. And, like, you have to you have to tell people what that is now. BDSM. <laughs> uh, what is it called? Bondage sadomac- sadomasochism. Yeah. Is that I think that's. Got it. Uh, no, I'm domination. That's that's what I'm missing. Bondage, domination, sadomasochism. Yes. Got it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I can see the argument where people are like afraid of the the internet and what it's mm-hmm. doing to young minds, um, but like I mean, you just have onward with the march of technology. I mean, you can't. You can't just say like, oh, like hoogla hoogla, like internet is bad. <laughs> like it's just like, all right, well, you know, fire is bad. Like the the earth revolves around. The, like I don't know. It's just like we live in the now. You have to adjust to what is happening now. You have to have these conversations with your kids because if you don't have it, the internet will have it yeah. before you, yeah. and that's just that's just what's gonna happen. And the internet is probably gonna show them some pretty messed up stuff like because it just has that ability to yeah um and i think like when i was using the internet like i'm thinking the early 2000s even that like i think it's so interesting now because there's like it seems like it's less um easy to find the things that i was finding like just happening upon like on the internet in like 2004 mm. right? like you remember there were things like limewire um like torrenting was mm-hmm. super big and you could torrent anything you could find anything this is before youtube was bought by google right yeah. people would put up like anything so the internet was just like this wild western like like show so it was like it was crazy. I don't know what kids are finding now, yeah. um, but I know like sometimes I'll see like because I I follow like my my younger uh, family members and sometimes I'll see them post things and I'm like how do how do how do you even know that mm. like where'd you even where did you even get that from like you're literally like 13 yeah. like yeah. I don't know yeah. so having those conversations is is important what so so answering your question you are I'm gonna bring you back to a um, like a, a one one phrase one word answer on uh, the internet more of a detriment to how we learn things like a positive culture for consent or um, or an asset Oh, it's definitely more of an asset. Got it. It's definitely more of an asset. Um, How do you guys feel about it? Um, I think, like, I want to go back to Tammy's uh, idea about fire, right? Fire can be wonderful. It can be life-saving. It can also be incredibly destructive. So I don't think the Internet or technology, it's, it's, a, it's a neutral thing, right? Mm. It, I don't think that it 
it necessarily like creates positivity or negativity. It all depends on how you use it. Sure. So it can be used for anything. Um, I think what I've seen on the internet when it comes to conversations around consent, um, I mean, look at like the Me Too movement, Time's Up, and all these movements that are leveraging the internet and leveraging yeah. the conversations you can have and how widespread that can become so quickly um, to really have more conversations about consent and sexual violence and um, and to bring more nuance into the conversation. So, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we weren't talking about the role that power and privilege play into something like consent, mm. right? So I think as the conversation has gone on, largely th- online and largely through the internet, um, it's become more and more nuanced, right? So instead of just yes means yes and no means no, we can now have more conversations about, well, what does it mean um, if you're under the influence and you um, consent to something? Or what does it mean if you ask someone when you're under the influence mm-hmm. and how how can you interpret signals less well, potentially, if yeah. you're under the influence? And what does that mean? And what does it mean if someone's your boss? And what does it mean if someone um, has more social status than you? Um, so I think it allows us to have more nuanced conversations about um, about consent and uh, about how we relate to each other and, and how we think about power and privilege and how we relate to each yeah. other. Yeah, I, th- I agree with Julia. Uh, it's it's neutral, and there's there's pros, there's cons to it, right? And I think the pros are really that we can provide videos with examples, and we can have conversations. But I also think that they have to be accompanied with conversation that's happening either with parents or with educators. This goes back to the skills that I was talking yeah. about earlier, right? If young people don't have those skills to have that conversation, it doesn't matter what they've seen on the internet, if they've been engaged in some kind of uh, dialogue about it online, unless they have the opportunity to actually have the conversation. So, for example, two young people may be having a conversation about what sexual behaviors they're going to engage in through text message, right? Now they get in a room together, and because they haven't actually Actually communicated face to face. Maybe they feel like, oh, this is really awkward or embarrassing mm. to have this conversation now that we're in the room together. Yeah. Those are the skills that they need to practice, and those are the conversations that we need to have. I also think we really need to do a much better job of bringing uh, men and boys into the conversation especially when we're talking about consent and sexual violence. I feel like so often we do these sexual violence prevention workshops and it's a room full of women. And I'm like, you can't talk about sexual violence prevention if you're not talking to men as well, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have to engage men and boys in these conversations. I think uh, even when it comes to sex ed in general, we engage girls, I think, much more than we engage boys. And we see that in our websites because boys are like, not getting the information so they're just kind of searching around for it right and Mm -hmm. so girls they may get a whole conversation and boys may get a condom thrown at them and you know use it no explanation how to use it Mm -hmm. you know or anything like that and then that creates you know big problems we're forgetting 50 percent of who's out there as sexual beings right when we do that and um that's problematic for sex ed yeah so many things I want to keep talking about, but I also want to respect um, your time and everybody has uh, things to jump off and do. Um, uh, yeah, man, I have so many more questions. Um, you guys have taught me so much. I want to give you also the opportunity um, to plug away and to the extent that this audience can be useful to um, pushing eyeballs to the things that you do, whether it's um, online or elsewhere. Um, tell us tell us uh, where to find you and um, 
and you know you can go nuts all right answer and sex etc are on pretty much all of the social media platforms uh, we have resources out there for lots of different age levels so i'd start with our amaze initiative uh, amaze on youtube is where you're going to find those videos for young people but you'll also find them on amaze.org as well as information for parents and educators on how they can start the conversations for educators there's questions that they can use in the classroom to help them process the videos and meet learning objectives um, all match to the national sexuality education standards so you're making sure that you're getting good accurate information to the young people for our older high school audience we have sexetc.org sexetc.org that has teen written content so mm -hmm. we make sure that it's you know medically accurate and factual but it's teen voices talking to other teens and so we think that that's really important and then going back to my wish with the magic wand if we could do one thing we also provide online professional development workshops Great. a series of nine different courses that educators who can't get out of the classroom and maybe don't have a large professional development budget can engage in and get the information that they need specific to different uh, content areas and success. Outstanding. That's pretty great. Um, so Planned Parenthood is most easily found on our website, PlannedParenthood.org. Um, we have a wide variety of tools and resources um, online for both um, for both educators and for parents. Um, so I mentioned earlier we have a website specifically for parents. It's just plannedparenthood.org slash parents. Um, there's tons of content and videos there um, on talking to your kids about um, different topics at different ages. We also do have a section just for educators. Mm. Um, uh, so if you go to the, our flagship website, you can find it there. Um, and we have all of the lesson plans that we've created for um, both our uh, consent video series and our STD communication video series. So we have lesson plans that can go along with those. And then we also have lesson plans that go along with uh, our digital education tools, which is a series of tools for their interactive quizzes and games for middle school and high school aged young people um, that are really focused around um, pregnancy prevention and dual use, which means using both birth control and a condom to mm -hmm. prevent both pregnancy and STDs. Um, so we have some lesson plans there, and then all of the, the tools themselves are on our website as well. Um, and uh, we also have our chat text hotline. Uh, it's available on our website seven days a week where you can talk with a live health educator. Um, and this is something that is national and free. So anyone can promote this to any of the young people in their lives. So they can access this and get answers to their questions. We also have a, an app called Spot On. It's our period tracker and birth control reminder app. It is free and available on uh, Android and iPhone. Um, and it's a great resource to help uh, young people both um, better understand their cycles um, and their periods and um, and how that works for them and get to understand their bodies better. Um, but it's also really helpful for anyone who's on birth control to help them really track and stay on top of their birth control and mm. use it correctly and consistently. Um, so those are those are that's a, a good sampling of the resources that we have online. But basically, anything can be found on our website or yeah. through our social media. And anybody who's thinking, um, you know, for spot on is actually a one of the ways that I got connected um, to Planned Parenthood and, mm. and your uh, group at Planned Parenthood was um, at a at a demo for education technologies that uh, my organization Mouse was was also demonstrating. Uh, you know, and we were sharing a stage with Planned Parenthood, and they were showing spot on. One of the things I find remarkable about it is it's so beautifully designed. From uh, it's a great user experience. It's super fun uh, looking and just seems um, like the right team was uh, putting it together. So um, kudos on uh, 
doing an app, but doing it properly um, and really thinking about uh, how you design and build something like that with users in mind. Thanks. Yeah, um, it's got a nice cyclosaurus in there, a little dinosaur that'll yeah. talk through your cycle. It's gender neutral, which we put a lot of thought into, which ensuring was gender neutral, and really thinking about people using it for birth control, which a lot of the period apps out there don't necessarily address. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it integrates your birth control into the tool, which is great. Yeah. Temi. I have nothing to plug, <laughs> but my uh, but myself. Well, but you do. Here's here's what I want you to plug, right? Besides, so I'm gonna leave in um, in the show notes, obviously, and and people are gonna know what your bio is and and your Twitter handle and that kind of stuff. Um, but if you uh, could use your your minute here um, to talk to young people. Um, as somebody who's been through it, and um, if you have uh, a tip for young people who are on, especially people who are online and looking for answers, sort of what should they be keeping in mind? What, if you could talk to your 15-year-old self, uh, what would you have told yourself that uh, now? Um, and and just uh, share your wisdom. Um. I would tell myself to not overshare <laughs> on uh, social media um, and that people are habitual liars. I mean, they just sort of lie about everything. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, and I don't necessarily think it's like uh, they're lying to be a bad person. I think they believe the lie that they're telling um, and that misinformation is such a large issue on social media and yeah. to check your facts yeah. and use Google Scholar. Yeah. Yes. This is awesome advice. As yeah. a young journalist and somebody who has uh, reported on a lot of really important topics, um, the internet as we know is not filled with young journalists. Uh, who are checking facts. Um, So I think that is such sound advice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thank you all for doing this. I've learned a ton. I hope you're ready for an email from me about when we can schedule another conversation uh, because I have so many more questions and I feel like we just scratched the surface. But um, thank you for being a part of it. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Of course. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in Episode Zero, an Ithaca bomber, an engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This show would not be possible without the support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org. 